it was like that kind of classic experience you can hear described sometimes when people come out to their friends and their friends are like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Discovering that there's actually a word, because I'd always prior to that said that I didn't feel male or female, and now there's a word for it, and it's non-binary, and that's been amazing. It's so important to create the spaces where people feel safe being themselves and and light the fire under my ass a little bit to to kind of make those spaces happen or do whatever I can to contribute to that or that representation. What queer identity has done is it's just opened up life for so many relationships, not needing to have these prescribed societal forms. Things have this ability to be malleable. Deserts are for folks who want to know something deeper. I mean, the desert is gay as hell. This is Lift Up, a show that elevates LGBTQ plus voices in the high desert. We're happy you're here. I was really struggling to find the balance between being active LDS and also being openly gay. And so you're caught between these two worlds and you're part of both, but you don't belong in either. This episode, we have a conversation with Josh Patterson. Hello, my name is Josh Patterson. I live in Moab. I've only lived here about a year and a half, but I've been visiting since uh, 2021. I was born and raised in Salt Lake, um, lived most of my life in West Valley and Magna, where I actually graduated from high school, Cypress High Pirates. Um... But for a short time in 2019, I lived in Sugar House, which is probably one of my most favorite places I've ever lived in my entire life. I've never felt more at home or like me, like I belonged. When I used to live out there, it was just such a vibrant and young community. It was liberal, which was amazing versus like the more conservative environment I grew up in. Like my first year of pride, there were more pride flags in that area than I had ever seen before in my life. And it was just an incredible environment. There's this beautiful mixture of like history, but also like innovation and newness today. Plus you got the young energy from like it being close to a university. And so it's just this vibrant community that I just had never felt more like I belonged more in, honestly. Plus it's where I found my um, swim team before I moved down to Moab. Um, It's actually a queer swim team. Quack, uh, Queer Utah Aquatics Club. It's where I actually met not only my best friend who would become my best man, but it's where I could just feel at home. I think Moab will always have a special place in my heart, but I don't think it could ever be home for me as like being up in Salt Lake or being up in Sugar House specifically. Moab has taken on a very special form for me because it's been a place where I've been able to heal. It's obviously, I mean, I moved down here because I found, met the love of my life and we got married. So this has been a very special place where it's been a time for me to heal and grow, but I just don't feel like this could actually ever be home. It could be a place where I live, where I can, you know, grow as a person, but I would never say home. I stay here because this is where my spouse's job is. I stay here because this is where his group of friends are. Um, My husband is actually an immigrant. My husband's an immigrant, Filipino immigrant, and he's one of the most wonderful people you could ever meet in your life, but 
we stay down here because he has found a community of other Filipinos. And it's a place where he can claim home because he himself is like separated from his old home. He needs to be able to feel connected to it. Plus, it's just he's got a really good position down here. And chances of him getting into such a great position up, uh, up in Salt Lake without having to stop from the bottom, it's kind of a little difficult. I have found Moab um, outside of the tourist season, mostly. That it's a very quiet place, and I really like the quiet of this place down here. Moab is a small town set out in the middle of the desert. It's stuck between two national parks that attract people from all over the world, which is awesome that you get to meet people from all over the world. But it's a very insular community. It's all, it's very difficult to make friends, I would say. Um, it can get lonely at times. That's how I would describe Moab. I mean, you get flashbacks from different centuries. It's also more liberal in a way because there are, like I said, there are pride flags all over the place. But it really is hard to make a living and a life down here in many ways, especially to feel connected to a community. It's a mishmash of so many different things and life experiences. I don't think I could ever boil down my identity to and how I view myself as just one particular thing. It's a culmination of just different experiences and learning. I mean, like, how do you boil down, you know, the experience of someone who was born and raised Mormon in the 2000s? I mean, 90s and 2000s. <laughs> but who grew up also gay in a very insular community as well, but who also loves studying languages. I went to school for anthropology. Um, I enjoy art. I enjoy books. I enjoy, you know, literature, like I said. But I have gone through so many different things. I have no idea how I would... I, I feel like I'm at this mismatch between different communities. I have no idea how I would really identify myself. I mean, can any person be any just one singular identity? I can definitely say that sometimes some identities have felt more at arms with one another. I remember when I lived up in Salt Lake and I was like really struggling to find the balance between being, you know, LD, active LDS and also being openly gay. Because up in Salt Lake, you ha it almost feels like you have to be one or the other. And so you're caught between these two worlds, but you're not, and you're part of both, but you don't belong in either. I first probably realized I was gay when I was a young kid, honestly. Like the first time I ever said it was in fifth grade. It was just the first time I'd ever said the word. I still remember going to this old camp away that like fifth and sixth graders could go to. And I said the words, I'm gay. Yeah. I didn't really even really understand what that word meant. In fact, I got in trouble with uh, teachers and principals a lot when I was younger because I would say that word. They would, they would call my parents. I'd get called to the principal's office and the principal would contact my parents saying, it's like, oh, he's just doing it for attention or something else like that. 
but I still remember that my crush, my kinder first crush in kindergarten was a boy named Levi at Almost Valley. And of course, like, you know, like when you're young, these things are just natural to you. You don't even like think about it. But I mean, like also back then I had a crush on a girl because I thought she looked like Hilary Duff, you know? <laughs> it's, I mean, sexuality is not really what I would say, like fully formulated at that time when you're like that young. But you can already start, you already have developed crushes. You're already developing what you're interested in. You know what I mean? I just kind of also grew up in a home where unfortunately such things were not acceptable. There were numerous points, I think, like because I, I always treaded in and out of the closet. One minute I'd be saying I was, the next I wasn't. Which I guess from a parent's perspective could get confusing. But... I don't know, I just still remember the first time I had my first boyfriend in 10th grade. His name was Alex. My mom found out and she told me I couldn't come home anymore. That I needed to find a new place to live. I was in 10th grade and I still remember one day she picked me up, not long after finding out about it. She told me that the only reason she was taking me home was because a, a really bad winter storm was coming through. But yeah, no, I grew up with only sisters. My dad is a truck driver. He works really hard for the family. There's no denial about that. He worked really hard, but that means he was gone a lot. And there were so many times growing up where unfortunately I would get ganked up on by the women in the family. No, I mean like literally like ganged up into a corner because they would be mad about something and I would end up somehow like hiding in a corner. Literally, I felt like a, like that old Cinderella song sung by Brandy in my own little corner. The corner of my closet was like the safest place for me, which is hilarious that I say the closet considering I ended up coming out of it years later. That's where I would read at night. To me, books were my only friends, honestly. Because there were so many times where I did not have actual friends. Where I, I mean, I look back and I thought I did. But no, I really didn't have many friends. I was not a popular kid, really. Seventh grade, I got beaten up so badly. I was, I was made suicidal. I was seventh grade and these kids were telling me that they would dance on the grave if I died. Okay, I got beaten up so badly at the last dance that I ended up in the emergency room. You transferred me schools and suddenly I'm on the cheer squad. I'm getting the lead of the school musical. I'm, I guess, quote unquote popular. But also I think very much a scared little kid in a lot of ways because there were so many sometimes rumors just running around about my own sexuality. Um, because like I said before, I was always like kind of jumping in and out of that closet. One minute, yeah, I'm out. But the next then I'm like, due to social pressure or family pressure, denying it. You know, experimenting on one side, keeping it quiet on the other. Um, I was scared to just ask people out and be myself in a lot of ways. And I feel like I missed out on a lot of things because I was so scared. Like... I never went to prom. I never went to prom. I was so scared to ask out the guy I liked. His name was Jazz. 
I was part of the theater group and he was part of the jocks i would say like the football and basketball guys we were just running in two different circles but my god i had the biggest crush on him i am still scared in a lot of ways of trying putting myself out there and i think a lot of that comes from trauma a lot of that comes from the trauma of my own family the trauma of rejection from others and and yet in other ways i'm very confident the loud boisterous me I'm more sure in myself in a lot of ways, but I'm also more scared. It's, it's really weird because I'm less likely to go out and do take a chance on something, but yet I'm still more likely to be more vocal about issues that I find going on. Ten years ago, I feel like there was an event that ended up changing my entire course of life. It's fascinating that we're having this, again, this interview, this meeting, when we are reaching these kind of, I guess, anniversary points. Because not only are we reaching the anniversary of me coming out officially, like out of the closet, bang, just, you know, full-on Elsa walking towards, you know, letting it go, you know? Which, incidentally, it's also been 10 years since that movie came out. Okay. <laughs> but 10 years ago, there's there's this point where I call it the before and the after. And right now we're on the after, and then there was the before the event. For those who have not born and raised within the LDS church, there's this thing called an LDS mission that, you know, everyone is infamously aware from, like, the musical The Book of Mormon and everything about young men going out serving missions to try and teach about the church and things. I had always wanted to do that. From the young age, I had always looked up to these young men as superheroes in a way. I genuinely, like, I know some people, some men went out just because it was expected of them, because, you know, mom and dad said so. But I genuinely wanted to go. I wanted to serve. I wanted to teach. I wanted to get out. And I can't help but wonder if maybe some of it was just trying to get out of my own family home. But also because, like, I genuinely wanted to go. I wanted to have that experience. Well, it started probably back in 2011 when I had just turned 18. I had graduated from high school. And back then, you know, young men went out at 19 and then women at 21 if they wanted to. I was already 18. After graduation, I would turn 19 six months later. And at that point, I had transferred from being part of what they call a family ward, which is just a congregation built up of local families and everything, to what they call a young single adults ward, which is just 18 to 31 year olds just going to church. We jokingly call it a meat packing factory or a sausage fest because like everyone's trying to find that one companion marriage. But I had transferred to this ward with a bishop who I did not know, did not know my history or had ever worked with me. Everyone else, you know, previous bishops had known about my quote-unquote dalliances, interactions with um, other young men. But in their eyes and within the church, I had been not acting on any homosexual desires or anything. So in their eyes, I was clean. After transferring, I met with this bishop. I had worked to put in for applying for a mission call. 
which is this thing that young men and young women all around get that's decided for them about the location of where and when they're going on a mission. You know, it gives details about, like, the area, who's going to be your mission president, which is really the old guy that looks over everyone. And I was excited, although I was really disappointed on where I got called to. I'll be honest. I got called to Nebraska-Omaha mission, okay? Which I was really hoping for Europe, okay? I was really hoping for Europe. I especially thought, like, somewhere in France. I don't know why, but, like... (laughs) But Nebraska-Omaha, that's only, like, two states over, and a lot of people commented that. <laughs> They're just like, oh, wow, you, you're going there? That's not far. I was like, congrats, you know U.S. geography, okay? After getting my mission call, my bishop called me into his office. And at that point, I thought that we were just going to go over the next steps before I left, was supposed to leave. That's what I thought it was going to be. That was not what happened. My bishop called me in and he started asking me some things about my past that I had never told him because I didn't feel like I needed to tell him. He started asking me some kind of graphic details, like how many guys I had been with, what positions we had been in. And at that point, I took it as just like an opportunity to show, I was like, okay, yeah, here, I'm going to take this opportunity to be clean. I'm going to just come out. It's like, to show that I have integrity, you can trust me, that I'm going to be honest about my previous experiences, but that's not who I am now. I'm not doing anything, you know? Then he started asking me about a young man back at the beginning of, um, I think, my senior year of high school. This young man had gotten hurt. And, um, mind you, he had also had an axe to grind with me simply because I had we had dated for, like, a couple days. <laughs> but... He asked me what my experience with that young man was. And I thought it was weird because I'm like, I have never mentioned this young man's name before. How do you know him, you know? I asked him, like, where have you gotten any of this information? Because some of it was, like, accusations made against me that were not true at all. Like, I had alibis for. And he said he received an anonymous phone call with concerns about me going on my mission. Which I thought was weird. I would later find out that this bishop knew this young man personally. That this was a very much personal uh, situation that was going on. I got a phone call one day to meet up with, meet up at my old home ward. The family ward I had been part of. To meet with my old bishop. And my mom and dad had been asked to go there, which we thought was weird. So we show up. And have you ever walked into a room that's like cold? That's like normally, like, normally is warm and affectionate. But like when you walk into a room and you just like the warmth has been taken out. That's what it felt like walking into that room. My old whole ward bishop was sitting at his, was sitting at his desk. And then my YSA bishop was kind of sitting next to the window. And then my whole ward bishop, I still remember to this day, just sat there like a mousy little man. He's a good man. I still love him to death. But like in that moment, he very much was very weak, I would say. My YSA bishop then told me that he'd been working with the missionary department to determine whether or not I should go on a mission. And it was determined that I should not. That my mission call was to be revoked and that I was to go see counseling. I still remember him saying to my parents, because they were they absolutely objected to this. 
that it wasn't fair or right that they were pointing out I was like you know I was clean with the church why is this being an issue now all of a sudden I remember that bishop saying it would be an embarrassment for someone like me to go out to the church and represent the church I thought that was so interesting because all I could think was like of the people I knew who I guess had done worse and still gone out. But I was willing to do it, anything to go on a mission. This was my dream. This was literally just like the thing I had waited my entire life up to that point. Everything I had plotted and planned for life was to go on a mission. And it's a big deal, like the social parameters that can come about from people who either come home or don't go at all for any number of reasons like it's not like there are numerous reasons why somebody wouldn't go or anything but the social expectation and cultural expectation was that every young man goes we had been taught from leaders down you go on a mission this is a commandment this is not just like a suggestion i stayed in that ysa for a couple more weeks because i remember my that bishop trying to meet with me and saying that it was similar to like an addiction the homosexuality was similar to an addiction like um porn or uh, drugs and alcohol that it can be beaten but i started going to counseling at lds family services and it was actually conversion th- a form of conversion therapy conversion therapy the way the church was doing it at that time didn't involve like what it used to that like electric shock therapy or anything else like that although they did use negative reinforcement therapy um that this life that you have is like a long rope you have the beginning end and then this life is like this small little part of this rope versus like stretching into eternity are you really gonna like give up your eternities in order to have this gratifying experience in this life so they would like try and use this like mentality within you like my he would have me masturbate to straight porn which frankly turned me way more off of the female form than anything else probably he would have me use like rubber band to like anytime i had like thoughts about a man or anything like that to snap myself to try and elicit pain within my head that like such things are negative and you don't want to go there you know um it was just traumatizing simple as that and it went on for like six months six months of it and there are things i just frankly don't want to talk about when it comes to what i experienced in there and by the time i was done we were going up for another reevaluation for whether or not I could go on a mission. My stake president, my new bishop, and this counselor guy all sending in letters of recommendation for me. All apparently sent in good recommendations for me to go, but what we heard back from the missionary department was, quote, not a no, just not yet. That give it another year to see if it'll work out. Which means basically I've put after graduation of high school, whereas like most of my my peers have gone out already on their missions and already serving, I was left home alone still, putting my life on hold for this possibility and chance that I might be able to go out.
I feel like everyone has like those pivotal years in their lives. Like those years that just stand out more than others. 2013 is that for me. This was like actually kind of the probably that beginning of leaving the before and starting the after. Because 2013 was when probably one of my favorite years, honestly. I got called to be the ward mission leader. It started off teaching with a couple elders. Then it just grew and grew. And as soon as it went from not only just districts, but zones, but entire missions I was working with and teaching lessons. And I knew two different mission leaders who I had their personal phone numbers on my phone to contact if I needed anything. I was constantly taking the missionaries out for lunches. I was serving with them, teaching with them. I taught the lessons in three different languages. I literally taught myself Spanish in order to teach the lessons in Spanish. I mean, I was taking lessons in ASL. I was learning American Sign Language and then usually interpreting also later on. And so I was very busy. I was very active. And it was probably one of the, my favorite times. I felt so useful and needed. But it was also really hard because in my head, I was thinking like, I want to be you. I am this person on the outside that is in it. Once again, I'm in, like, it's like I said earlier, I was like being part of this world, but not belonging to it. You know, and yes, I was making some very good friends who I'm still in contact with to these 10 years later. And I absolutely love and adore. Um, but I still remember sometimes teaching lessons on homosexuality and just feeling it digging in me. <laughs> it was part of this lesson called the Law of Chastity. And in it, you teach new members that homosexuality, the acts of homosexuality are against what they call the Law of Chastity. And so like it always like dug into me although i still remember one elder texting me he's like oh yeah you need to study up on this like please i got this down i know this one very well i still remember that one year and i'm still ashamed to say it that day but i think about that environment i was in and why i said i still remember saying that same-sex love was a selfish love I cringe at it now, but again, at the memory, when I think about where I was in the environment and the mentality I was in, it fit very much as a way of self-preservation as well, like keeping myself safe. Um, so I'm ashamed of it now, but back then, it I don't think anyone could fault me for saying it based off of those situations that I was in. It got to a point finally about mid-2013. We're nearly two and a half years into this of me trying to serve a mission, which basically is the amount of same time that a person would actually serve a mission, fun fact. I have put my life on hold in many different ways. I am reeling with the pain of seeing friends gone, emailing them almost every week. And now we're finally thinking it's my turn. Finally, I get to go out. And so we put everything in, we're waiting. And I still remember the day of October 13th. It was a Sunday, October 13th, 2013. Will always live in my memory, probably. I had just gotten home from church and my state president called me and said, hey, we heard back from the missionary department. Um, I want you to come in tonight. Now, the thing that got me excited was he did not ask my parents to come along, which had always been like a sign of like, news you know 
and I was excited. I'm like, finally, finally, you know, after everything I've done, all the prayer I've done, you know, all the blessings I've gotten that was said I would serve a mission, everything I've done to get to this point, I can finally have my dream come true. You know, I will no longer be left behind in many ways. About an hour before that meeting, my, my state president calls and says, hey, I need you to bring your parents with you. And immediately I felt this drop in my gut. I just, I felt it. I'm like, no, no, don't let it be. You know, I'm just, you know, silent praying and saying, don't let it be what I think it is. Don't let it be what I think it is, please. After everything I've sacrificed, after everything I've done, everything I've been told to do, all the hoops I've drawn through, please don't let it be what I think it's going to be. And it was. We sat down in front of my stake president and he said that the missionary department had decided that it was time for me to move on with my life that I would not be allowed to have it or go forward with this. I just, I just, I had to walk out of that room. I remember it. I mean, just how coldly it was, you know? I was counseled to like, start your life, find your eternal companion, go to college, start your career, those three things. And I'm like, I just lost everything. I had my mission stolen from me. Something I had worked so hard and put myself through so much for, and now just poof, gone. Which I mean, I know a lot of people go through worse in life and everything. But I just remember I felt like today's the day that dreaming ends. Today was the day that it all ended. And. I felt so lost and I felt so angry at that time. Anger can't even describe, I don't even think I have the words to describe what I felt emotionally wrecked inside. And I still remember going into that they call, it, they call it a court, which really is a terrifying uh, word. They really should change it. <laughs> but I went into my old stake, and there were just all these, like, I think 13 men. When I walked into the room, they all stood up. And it was very quiet. It was, you know, a sign of respect for me. And my stake president went on to just give me nothing but accolades saying how he had never seen someone work so hard to go on a mission in his entire life, want wanted more, and things happened. And when it finally came to my turn, and I said what I had all experienced since coming out, I mean, between the two weeks before getting kicked out of my parents calling me nothing but a faggot or a jackass, how they didn't love me anymore, and all these things. And I still remember this this guy that frankly, you would not expect this to happen. He just like, this big old dude with a big um, bolo tie and like those big old Western belt buckles, actually breaking down into tears, telling me that no one should have to go through what I did. And it's true. And it was interesting because like, I know like a lot of people out there do have bad experiences with their excommunication. And I'm not, I never want to take away from that because those are very real experiences. But mine was genuinely peaceful. Whoa.
is like when I walked away, it, I, it's hard to explain how it felt, but it's like when you when you're a member, you take on certain promises and rules and covenants, and you have to live by those. And some see excommunication as a punishment. I only saw it as a release from those covenants. Like literally, it just felt like like Christ Himself was saying, "It's like you take your time to heal. You, we're, I'm releasing you from these covenants that you are not able to live by right now. But you need take you take your time. Step away. Take some time to heal. We'll be ready for you when you come back." That's what it felt like to me. It was very peaceful. It was a very easy transition. And frankly, afterwards, I felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulder. I literally felt lighter. I got rebaptized in 2016. Yeah, it was still something I still believed in, in for the most part, because it was still a huge part of my belief system. Everything I've been raised in, everything part of who I was, my community, my heritage, you know? I was going back and forth. How can I be part of the church but still be openly gay? You know, this is painful, you know, how it is. Um, there was a lot of pressure being the first openly gay man. And I had both wonderful successes, and I dealt with, unfortunately, bishops who were just absolutely horrible. I think it was 2018, I was sexually assaulted by the guy I was seeing at the time. And I went to my bishop and he put me on what they call probation. I was punished for it. I mean, this bishop had an axe to grind with me personally, I think, just because I was very open about my struggle. I was very open about my position. I mean, like, obviously it wasn't every topic that I talked about, you know, but I wasn't gonna hide. And I helped many young men and women because of it. For me, it was a matter of safety, not a lack of belief or anything. But I realized after going through one bishop who punished me after being sexually assaulted, and then moving to Sugar House, frankly, which was the best thing, one of the best things I ever did, because I got part of a YSA award where it was extremely accepting and opening. I was not the only gay member that went. Um, there was actually a, a couple couples that went because it was such an allied ward. Which really tells you the difference between east side versus west side which is where i was experiencing a lot of the homophobia from like the leaders and adults and everything versus like literally i brought a boyfriend once to church and everyone was like oh this is so exciting we love you you know and everything um but it really kind of kind of sank in i was like look after all my years of experiences between the mission between a few other bishops so long as i maintain my membership records wherever i go those records come with me and whoever holds them within their bishop has priesthood authority over me and that means they can as they can hold bias i can get in trouble and so it just became a matter of safety i just realized i'm like look so long as i stay a member i'm taking a gamble and chance of wherever i live that I don't know if the person, the bishop's going to be awesome or is going to hurt me. So I need to remove my records for a matter of safety. That way I can go to church. I can still maintain 
basically everything I was doing up to now. The only things I would like really lose versus like excommunication where you're actually like prohibited from like doing certain things. Like you can't say a prayer during sacrament. You can't partake of the sacrament. You can't pay tithing and other things. You can't do that stuff. If you remove your records, you're just basically a non-member now. And so I just wrote up a letter and I gave it to a fantastic bishop. I mean, honestly, he was really wonderful. He was just a genuinely wonderful, like he came to my wedding, which is a big deal. You know, a bishop actually going to a same-sex wedding. He couldn't like officiate or anything, but he could go. Like, he was very saddened for me to leave, but he understood. He was the first bishop to ever say, I trust you. I trust you know what you're doing. I'm free to take what I want from my past into this. Like, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, I can take the good things that I believed in and bring it into my whatever I believe right now. And honestly, I've, I've tried looking at other religions, even different Christian denominations. Nothing fits. I don't think anything like will ever really fit, honestly. But I think that just also comes from like growing up years in the church you know like certain things are instilled in my mind that will never be able to change like i still can't drink coffee to this day i've tried wine don't like it <laughs> but they're just some things that are just part of me now and i don't think i can ever really get past them you know what i mean I've thought about a lot of what I would tell myself as a younger kid. A very good friend of mine, we've texted many times, like, what would we change? You know, what would we do differently? I like to think that, like, maybe I would not be afraid any, like, stop being so scared that I would ask out that guy to prom, even if it doesn't work out, you know? That I would go out of my way for that. Maybe try more opportunities than I let myself care less about what people who I thought were my friends were thinking. I probably wouldn't try for a mission. But really, I think I would just, I don't know if I would do differently because like of the environment I was in. Everything I did, I did to survive. Because if I look back and the environment wouldn't really change, even if I did differently. So I, th I don't know. I think I just would tell myself, have faith, keep strong, Love yourself and don't care what the naysayers say. You've been listening to Lift Up, a show that elevates community voices in the high desert. Thank you, Josh, for sharing your thoughts on identity and home. This episode was produced by Ginger Cyan with support from KZMU. 
Lift Up is a storytelling project of KZMU featuring conversations with locals whose identities and experiences have not traditionally been prioritized on the airwaves. Lift Up intends to deepen understanding and empathy within our community and reinforce a sense of safety and belonging for all. Lift Up is made possible with the support of Moab Pride and Moab City.